From APM Reports and The Washington Post, this is Historically Black. I'm Michelle Norris. There is a new museum on the Mall in Washington, D.C. It's the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture. And it houses thousands of historical objects that tell the story of this nation's history through the experience and contributions of black Americans. Whether it's the hymnal carried by abolitionist Harriet Tubman, the Cadillac driven by rock and roll legend Chuck Berry, the inkwell used by writer James Baldwin, the dress sewn by the civil rights icon Rosa Parks. Each object in the museum highlights a chapter in a historical narrative that includes bondage, oppression, liberty, and perseverance. In covering the museum's opening, the Post invited people from all over the country to submit photos of their own historical objects, things that connect them directly to black history. APM Reports teamed up with the Post to create a series of stories based on selected objects and the people who sent them in. In this episode, we're going to hear three of those stories. One about a legendary fiddle player in Missouri, another about a former slave who launched one of the nation's first black universities. But first, actress Issa Rae chronicles one man's hunt for the bill of sale for his enslaved ancestor and the surprising history he uncovered. My name is James McKissick, and the object that I submitted was a slave deed of sale for my great-great-grandfather. I'm Issa Rae. James McKissick lives in Chattanooga, Tennessee. He heads the Office of Multicultural Affairs for the city. He got the bill of sale from his mother, Marginia Woods McKissick. She's a retired teacher and school administrator. James put a framed photocopy of the document in his living room. Now, James and Marginia both knew they were descended from a slave named Wilson Wood. And they knew some of the stories about Wilson Wood handed down through the family over the generations. But until this year, James and Marginia had never heard of any bill of sale. My cousin had called me. This is a cousin I knew nothing about. I didn't know that we were even existed. She had talked with my cousins that live still out in Meigs County, in Decatur, Tennessee. And they had given her my name to call to get more information on the family. So while we were talking, she says, well, do you know I have Wilson Wood's uh, deed of a cell, slave deed? So she said, I'll send you a copy of it. So she sent me a copy of it. And James was at my house one afternoon. And I showed it to him. And, of course, I went to the copy machine and made a copy of it and gave it to him. And I think he sent it all around the world. (laughs) I posted it on social media. And James got a bunch of responses from friends near and far. A lot of people commented that they were sad when they read it, you know, how poignant it was. And those were the exact opposite feelings from what I had. To me, it, it did not make me sad. It made me appreciative of this person generations ago, who without him, I would not be here today. For many African-Americans who try to map their family trees, the branches stop short when it comes to slavery times. Families of European origin can often rely on a lot of different documents to trace their lineage. There are birth certificates, land deeds, military service records, immigration papers, and census results. 
They can use old letters and diaries and portraits to get a sense of their forebears. But historian Jessica Johnson of Johns Hopkins University says that Black families often have to piece together fragments of information from bills of sale or slave inventories. And these can be cold, unhelpful documents. What you have are just the description of of people and of of bodies. Um, Negro girl, Negro woman, Negro man. Um, The other reality is that even names change a lot over the course of of an enslaved person's life. Their name might change two or three times depending on the owner's desire to change the name, you know, And, and that's a difficult reality to face when you're facing the documents. According to family records, Wilson was born around 1815 in Virginia. His father was also his owner, a white man named William Wilson Wood. Wilson's mother was a slave named Mary. Slave owners did have carte blanche to engage in sexual intimate interactions with their slaves. You have cases where slave owners are engaging in rape um, and sexual assault and and all kinds of activities. In some cases, uh, you have maybe more long-term partnerships uh, or intimate interactions between slave owners and enslaved women. And those uh, cases, you do have moments, um, have instances where the offspring, the children, are given the name of, of slave owners. So, Wilson Wood was owned by his own biological father, William Wilson Wood. In 1838, William Wood moved his white wife and their family and their slave Wilson to Tennessee. Nothing is known about what happened to Mary. William Wood bought land and began farming. Wilson was a laborer and a blacksmith on the farm. William Wood died in 1861. The bill of sale for Wilson is dated September of the same year. Two months earlier, Tennessee lawmakers voted to secede from the Union in part to protect the institution of slavery. The bill of sale transfers ownership of a, quote, Negro man-slave named Wilson. No price is given. The new owner? William's brother, Samuel. In other words, Wilson's biological uncle. His name was Wood, too. That's where he got his last name from, his semester. Because he didn't have a last name. He was just Wilson, a male slave Wilson. Um, So to me, that was historic because then you can see where the family name came from, too. It is likely that Wilson got his freedom in 1864. The Civil War was still raging, but Tennessee was under Union control. Abraham Lincoln had issued the Emancipation Proclamation the year before. In October of 64, Tennessee's military governor, Andrew Johnson, declared all slaves in the state free. Three years after being emancipated, Wilson Wood did something remarkable. He bought a 160-acre farm. And I'm sure the reason they sold it to him because it was right on the Tennessee River. And uh, during that time, you get all that flood. So people didn't like to be around the river then. But now they love being around the river. So uh, it's just amazing. Historian Jessica Johnson says it was unusual for a recently freed slave to buy a farm. That suggests to me that there are all kinds of interesting stories that might be told about the experience of um, Wilson Wood as an enslaved person. The farm was in Miggs County, about 50 miles northeast of Chattanooga. Wilson bought the land for $1,500. That's about $27,000 in today's money. Did Wilson somehow make and save up that money as a slave? Did he get other emancipated slaves to pool their resources? 
Did the white family that owned him and was related to him help him purchase the farm? Without more documents, we may never know. But the 1870 federal census shows that Wilson, a farmer aged 55, and his wife Sarah had 11 children in the household. And the record shows a bit more. Wilson Wood Farm, Miggs County, Tennessee. 100 acres of improved land, 60 acres of woodland, six horses, two milk cows, five other cattle, 11 sheep, 50 pigs. It was no plantation, but it was prosperous enough. The farm produced 200 bushels of wheat, 800 bushels of Indian corn, 25 bushels of oats. Total value of farm, $2,000. Much of Wilson Wood's land is still in the family. In a grassy clearing in a forested part of the farm, you'll find the family cemetery. There are recent headstones with shiny marble faces and ancient markers with the names all worn off. Wilson's great-granddaughter, Marginia, leads the way. That's Wilson's right there. Yes, that's Wilson's tombstone right there. And Sarah's over there on the other side. And these right here are, from here back up this way, are Wilson's grandchildren and great-grandchildren. The family plot is sheltered by red oak, white pine, and cedar. Locusts buzz in the trees. Joining Marginia at the cemetery are her cousins, Booker T. and Chancel Woods. The Wood family name got an S added to the end along the way. Woods. There are dozens of headstones in this two-acre patch. Some headstones tell a sad story. Not all of Marginia's cousins survived childhood. Your father and mother had twins, too. Twins? Yes. Twice. Twice. Yeah, a trip. Lord, have mercy. That's now, why I was the about second, the, the, are you a twin? No. And you're not a twin. Howard is a twin. Howard. And Harold. Now, some in the Woods family still do a little farming, but most have other kinds of jobs. Chancel says he and Booker T. and the others have added to their properties over time, because family members understand the wisdom of investing in land. Chancel says it's a lesson passed down over the generations. Daddy, I think he always said people may come and go, but the land will endure. The land will always be there, so keep it. Keep it in your family. Not long ago, James and his mom, Marginia, drove over to Decatur, Tennessee, about an hour from Chattanooga. They want to see the original bill of sale in person for the first time. It's at the Miggs County Courthouse. It's in an old, leather-bound book filled with land and livestock sales. The entries are in pen and ink. Miggs County Clerk Janie Myers lays the book on her desk in front of James and Marginia. And you can see the handwriting. It's just absolutely beautiful, but it's, it's very hard to read. It's really interesting to see the original can I touch it? You certainly can. Can you read it out loud? Um, I think it says, then was a bill of sale from William Wood to Samuel O. Wood for one Negro man named Will Wilson, dated the 26th day, dated of, 26th October. day of October, 1861. Duly proven before me, clerk of the county court of said county, by Joseph Witt, that he was personally acquainted with the said William Wood and that he saw him sign and heard him acknowledge that he had executed said bill of sale, given under my hand at office indicator, Joseph T. Russell, 
clerk. I've been here for 22 years, and I didn't realize what was in the books. And to see that, it was a shock. It just makes me wonder what what it was like for him, though. But I'm sure they were used to it because they'd been moving around and sold, so it probably became a part of their life. But it's so transient, though, to to not not be able to plan for your future or to make and set goals because you never know where you're going to be next. Well, they understood that they might just be moved any moment. They might just be moved, killed, anything. So they had that in their heart and in their mind. Just like we know today that that danger wouldn't come to us, but they knew that they could expect anything out of life. But it also might be why he worked um, and, you know, purchased land well, then after he was right, free, after he, he was says, free. I'm going to make sure that my children and ancestors will have a better life. Yeah. Now, Wilson Wood's story has a relatively happy outcome. But historian Jessica Johnson reminds us it was not so common. Most freed slaves, if they had any money at all, had just enough to buy better work clothes or maybe a cow or a mule. Many stayed on the plantations of their former owners to work as laborers or sharecroppers. Johnson cautions that a story like Wilson's tempts us to find a kind of false benevolence in the practice of slavery. Wilson was still, until emancipation came, a slave. And that means that somebody else owned him, owned rights to his labor, owned rights to his person, his body, owned rights to, you know, if he's uh, fathering children with another enslaved woman, owns rights to their children. And that is a fundamentally terrifying and terrible experience. That's the chattel principle. Like, that is the principle of bondage. And it's important that we keep that in mind. At the Mix County Courthouse, James and Marginia each lay a hand, palm down, on the bill of sale. It's a small gesture of connection with their ancestor, Wilson Wood. In the same registry book, Clerk Janie Myers found and flagged a number of other bills of sale for slaves. One was for, quote, a Negro girl, Rebecca. One just says, two children. So, in a way... James and Marginia can count themselves fortunate that Wilson's name was written down at all and that the document survived. When I first saw this, I became sad, almost shed some tears, but then I realized that I'm still on the shoulders of those people in the past, and I'm what I am today because of them. Well, I actually have enjoyed seeing the real thing and um, touching it. I'm Still amazed that he made it through and got land and had families. And it's also amazing to me that a family, especially a black family, can hold on to land for over 150 years. And uh, I'm a little bit saddened because I'm not sure if my generation will continue to value it and hold on to it. But I think that... Wilson would be proud of us if he met us today. James Harwick Woods McKissick, the great-great-grandson of a freed slave named Wilson Wood, 
and his mother, Marginia Woods McKissick, Wilson's great-granddaughter in Meigs County, Tennessee. That was Issa Rae narrating our story. I'm Michelle Norris. You're listening to Historically Black, a production of APM Reports and The Washington Post. Coming up, a young man discovers that his great-great-grandfather was a famous fiddle player in Missouri. I remember sitting in my room, and I pressed play, and I felt like I was hearing and seeing a ghost. Our program continues in just a moment. This is APM, American Public Media. Welcome back, everyone. This is Historically Black, a production of APM Reports and The Washington Post. I'm Michelle Norris. As we heard before the break, it's hard for many African Americans to trace their family origins past the slavery era because written records don't exist or enslaved people are identified in records only by their first names. So we're going to take a moment to meet someone who's tackling that problem. In New York State, genealogist Sharon Morgan runs an organization called Our Black Ancestry, or OBA. She's built an online community of more than 31,000 people doing genealogical research, and it's growing quickly. OBA's website offers all kinds of resources and tutorials to help black Americans dig into their past. The first thing that you do is get your oral history. So you talk to the oldest people in your family, and you find out everything that they know. And then you use those as hints as you go along. You work from the premise that all oral history has a basis in fact. So it may not be 100% true, but there's something in there that will be true. When Morgan began to explore her own genealogy, she learned that her father's ancestors were emancipated in Lowndes County, Alabama. She then turned to census records. The first year the federal census began listing black people by last name was 1870, but many southern states began doing that a few years earlier. Sure enough, Morgan found a group of her family members listed in the 1866 Alabama census. To reach further back in time, Morgan began searching the personal records of slave owners who had lived in Lowndes County. And I found a document a will that offered for sale a Harriet and a Tom. More research enabled Morgan to confirm that she's related to Harriet and Tom on her father's side of the family. And that's what you do. I mean, you just meticulously keep going backwards. Morgan has encouraged white people to join Our Black Ancestry because the ones with slaveholding roots often have the kinds of family records that black people are looking for. DNA testing can also help people learn about where they come from and who they're related to now. One of Sharon Morgan's ancestors on her mother's side was an enslaved woman named Betty Wharf Gavin. She lived in Mississippi and had 17 children fathered by the nephew of her owner. DNA testing helped Morgan find people descended from that union. Some were white people. Morgan told them the story. They had no idea that they had any African ancestry at all, so they were very surprised. Like one of my talks, he's like, oh God, what am I going to tell my wife? Whatever they find, Morgan believes everyone should learn about their family history, especially black people. I think that digging into the past is something that empowers you because you realize how incredibly strong and resilient these people were. And that's who I come from? That makes me feel incredibly proud. 
We'll hear that kind of pride and some surprising revelations in our next story, which is narrated by Issa Rae. It's about a legendary fiddle player in central Missouri who we first heard about when his great-great-grandson submitted an object to Historically Black. Hello, my name is Raphael Sears, and I submitted a MP3 of my great-great-grandfather, Bill Driver, from a recording in the 1940s. Bill Driver was a fiddler in the rural part of Missouri. He played all kinds of instruments. He played the piano, he played the guitar, but he was known for his fiddle playing. Raphael Sears is a professional actor and singer, and he's getting his Master of Fine Arts at the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana. He's 35 years old, And Raphael has a big extended family that holds semi-annual reunions in Jefferson City, Missouri, not far from where Bill Driver spent much of his life. Growing up, Raphael didn't really know anything about his great-great-grandfather. He was only a boy when he went to his last Driver family reunion. But after Raphael's mother died in 2008, he wanted to learn more about his family's history and where he came from. I wanted to figure out who I was. And so I went on Ancestry.com and I did their free trial and I, I was on there until like the next morning. Like I remember the sun coming up and, and I just found all these census reports on my grandfather. And so then that led to his mother, which led to William Driver. So I, I went and talked to my Aunt Darlene about Bill and she showed me all these records. And I got really excited about him. I was like, oh, he was a musician too. This is so cool. Everyone in the family calls on Raphael's great aunt, Darlene, when they need info on their ancestry. She's the designated family historian. Darlene, whose last name is Goldston, has spent years tracking down information. Bill Driver was her grandfather, and she knows a lot about him. Bill Driver was a farmer. Uh, That was his profession, but he played several musical instruments. And as I was growing up, he played the, he called it the piano instead of the piano, Uh, the harmonica, the guitar, the fiddle. He just, anything he picked up, he could play. Darlene told Raphael everything she knew about Bill Driver. Then Raphael did his own digging. And so I went back to the computer and I said, let me just Google his name. And I stumbled upon this forum called Fiddle Hangout. And um, they had a thread talking about Bill Driver. And so I was like, let me just check this out to see if they're talking about the same person. And then they started talking about Iberia Breakdown, which is one of his songs. And I, I was just really excited to know that that people were talking about him. I mean, they were talking about his technique and now have you heard this and have you heard that? And I remember when he was here and I remember seeing him when he was, you know, that was kind of like my introduction to Bill Driver was just Googling him, basically. (laughs) And so the first time I remember sitting in my room and I pressed play and I felt like I was hearing and seeing a ghost. (laughs) 
That ghost, Bill Driver, lived in central Missouri, a region of farms, rolling hills, and woodlands. Bill Driver's father was a Baptist minister who also played music. Sometime in the early 1900s, Bill Driver met a woman named Violet May Williams. They married and lived on a farm near the town of Iberia, where they raised eight children. Iberia was predominantly white, and while Missouri had harsh segregation laws and customs, Darlene Goldson says the Driver family enjoyed easy relations with whites in their community. They all loved my grandfather and and my mom and the whole family back then because there were so few blacks. I think they, they were just neighbors. The neighborly relations did not mean the drivers were completely spared racial prejudice, but we'll get to that later in the story. What it did mean was that in central Missouri, at the turn of the 20th century, whites and blacks sometimes mixed freely at social gatherings. This was especially true at events where Bill Driver ruled the dance floor with his fiddle. He always played at the the dances. He played the kind of music that they could dance to. I mean, that's just rock-solid rhythm, which is the hallmark of a successful and seasoned dance fiddler. Howard Marshall is a retired university professor and a longtime Missouri fiddle player. He wrote the book, Play Me Something Quick and Devilish, about the history of fiddle playing in Missouri. And if you don't have that rhythm and that ability, you won't be invited back to play the next dance. They'll find somebody else. To understand Bill Driver's status as a black musician, you need to know more about the role fiddlers played in Missouri in his day. Howard Marshall says Missouri was, and still is, a big fiddling state. In the 1800s, Missouri was also the gateway for people heading west to seek their fortunes. It's the state where the great trails to Oregon and California began. Missouri, all the way through, you know, uh, the 1800s, well into the 1900s, is is the place people are moving to, called a jumping off place, you know, get off the boat, get off the trail, you stay, and then the next generation may go further west. Many of the people who jumped off in Missouri had a fiddle in hand. The fiddle was easy to carry in a gunny sack, and back then it was the most popular instrument in the United States. In fact, Bill Driver's father played the fiddle and taught his son some tunes. No one is sure whether Driver had any formal training, But what people do know is that Bill Driver was a fiddle-playing sensation in central Missouri. He played live on radio station WOS in Jefferson City, the state capital. At night, the station signal was so powerful that Driver's fiddle could be heard from Canada to Cuba. Bill Driver was also a serious contender in Missouri fiddle contests. Here's Driver's rendition of a classic tune, Red Wing. One of the most common tunes on the earth is Red Wing now, but nobody plays it like Bill Driver played. That was 1948 or something. And with a piano backup, that's how it sounded in 1898, right there. You know, that's just incredible. I'm thinking in a contest, you play something right in the strike zone that the judges are going to say, oh yeah. There's, there it is. And, but, and then they play Red Wing, and then the judges would think, hey, that's Red Wing, but he's got a little something 
different in there, a little of his own sauce, you know, and that really makes the tune. That special sauce, Howard Marshall says, involved playing with a heavy bow and using a type of sawing action at the low end, while playing a melody at the high end that kind of soars and wanders, almost like a sailor's hornpipe. It was a recipe that enabled Driver to win money at fiddle competitions. Um, this was the receipt for my grandfather, uh, where he played at one of his functions. And Back at Darlene Goldson's place, she and her son Russ pour over family artifacts that show Bill Driver's success as a fiddle player. You can see where this $10 was his ca- the cash. Wow. Okay, well basically this is an ad from the Cave Lodge um, in Crocker, Missouri, February 10th, let's see, February 10th, 28th. And it's just a um, certified that he was a, uh, that he won a fiddler contest and that he was paid $10 cash for his prize. $10 in 1928 is worth $140 today. A good bit of side money for a black farmer raising a family in rural Missouri. That same year, 1928, is when Bill Driver also met the man who made it possible for us to hear his music today. Hello, everybody. This is Bill Driver playing the fiddle and Bob Christian playing the piano. We're down here in Missouri. And uh, we're going to dedicate this first number to Bill's daughter, Blanche McKenzie. What are you going to play first, Bill? Grand Hornpipe. Bob Christensen was a white man from central Missouri. He worked for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, but his passion was old-time fiddle music. In the mid-1940s, Christensen realized that no one was preserving the fiddle songs he grew up listening to and playing. So in 1948, he bought a wire recording machine. The first person he chose to record was Bill Driver. In this clip, Christensen points out that he and Driver had just played the wrong song. That is awful good, Bill. That sounded like Marmaduke's hornpipe. I got my wires crossed. Well, let's play them. Uh, what was the one you said you were going to play? Grand. Okay, here we go. <laughs> Bill Driver had a huge repertoire of songs. Bob Christensen recorded as many of them as he could. Christensen recorded and transcribed the music of old-time fiddlers across a dozen states. In 1973, he published the first of two anthologies of traditional fiddle music. Those books helped kick off a revival of old-time fiddle playing. Bill Driver's music is well represented. Driver's fiddle music won him many admirers, black and white. But back in the early 1900s, music couldn't protect him from the rough realities of racial segregation in Missouri. For that story, let's return to Darlene Goldson and her son Russ as they leaf through a big red binder of family photos and papers. And this was a letter that was sent giving them permission to give my grandfather and my grandmother a marriage license. When Bill Driver and Violet Mae Williams decided to marry in 1907, they faced an obstacle. Well, as you can see, my grandmother, she was actually half black and half white. Her father was white. And they had to get permission because they weren't sure that she was colored. Interracial marriage was illegal in Missouri, as it was in 25 other states. 
Violet, Darlene's grandmother, looked like a white woman. So Bill Driver and his fiance needed help from the local justice of the peace. Russ, can you can you read it then? Ooh, let's see. Russ leans in to make out the letter this man wrote to a local attorney. Dear sir, will you kindly send me marriage license for William A. Drivers of Laclede County, who is 25 years of age, and Violet Williams of Iberia, Missouri, who is 20 years of age. Um, these parties are all colored, and I know that they are all right. And they're, yeah. <laughs> At least they know they're all right. <laughs> <laughs> The story behind Violet Meg Driver's mixed racial background might be lost today, but for a small rough-hewn cabin at a historical museum near the town of Iberia, Missouri. Darlene explains that Violet's mother, a woman named Esther, lived on the property of a white family, the Williams family, who had once enslaved her. She had her own little cabin that set off from the main house, and she continued to work for them. So one of the sons... She and one of the sons sort of had a little whatever, and she got pregnant. That white son was named Ben Williams. Esther gave birth to their baby in 1886 and named her Violet. When the Williams family saw Violet's light skin, they figured out what happened and forced her to leave. Esther moved to town with baby Violet and eventually married. Darlene says she learned most of this story from white descendants of the Williams family who reached out to their black relatives some years ago. It was the Williams family who donated Esther's old cabin to the Historical Society. I'm in touch with most of them, and they've just they've given me all of this information that I've got back here. I've got pictures. This is the the cabin, the cabin where he was born. that was uh, so my my where my grandmother was born. We were curious to see this cabin and explore the area where Bill and Violet Driver made a life together. So our producers set out with another driver descendant, Annette Driver, who lives in nearby Jefferson City. Annette is in her mid-50s and runs a business selling her family's barbecue sauce. The Miller Historical Society, now home to the cabin, is an easy drive from Jefferson City. Annette is greeted by a longtime official of the museum. I'm Carl McDonald. I've been with the museum and society for several, several years and had different uh, parts in it. This cabin. Carl walks Annette over to the cabin, then asks our producers to turn off their audio recorder. Excuse me, turn that off for a minute, will you please? Yeah. Carl says the conversation is going to be about slavery, which makes him uncomfortable. He's concerned about how all this will sound on tape. Annette offers some reassurance. But you know what? I really want truth. Truth is history. I really don't mind you telling the truth. Well... I, this is a very hard thing to talk about, even at the very best, slavery and what have you. And it's history. Yes. It's the way it was, the way it was, but a lot of people don't understand history can't be done anything about. But maybe we could understand some of it. Yes, and, I, I, and, and that's what I think can come from this truth, because here we are, and I was explaining uh, 
that even today we enjoy a very honorable connection with the Williams family and the descendants of the Williams family. So I don't mind you speaking truth. I, speak your truth. Yeah. As long as nobody's gonna beat you up after we leave for for saying it, you you have my you you have. I may get fired from the board. I don't think See? so. I I don't think so. Annette goes to open the door of the cabin. While Darlene and many other family members have made this visit, for Annette, it's the first time. Push it now. Okay, now, now you I have, have to lift up. Mm. And what am I going to be looking at? This You're is amazing. You're going to be looking at the inside. The main thing, I want you to look at this door thing first. The history on this door. Annette reads that history out loud. When John Williams Jr. came to Miller County from Kentucky around 1859, he brought with him a young slave girl named Esther. This log cabin was her home. In 1886, Esther bore a child by John's grandson, Ben, and the child was named Violet May. Annette takes note of different details of the home. A few dishes, a wood stove, one window. It's quite humbling to look at this. A little bit emotional. Bill Driver, Violet May's husband, is likely one of the more historically significant people to have lived in Miller County. But inside the History Museum, there's no sign of him. No picture of him on the wall alongside the notable white musicians from the county. Annette Driver thinks that this is merely an oversight. She plans to send materials that can be put on display. Stepping back outside, she's grateful to have tangible connections to her family's history. Like the cabin where her great-grandmother was born, and the music her great-grandfather, Bill Driver, left behind. We're very lucky that there's something here to document their existence and their mark on society that left, like, you know, I mean, they still talk about his music today, so. To me, that brings a lot of, that tells me a little something about what's in me. Bill Driver died in 1986. He was 104 years old. Driver was blind for the last 30 years of his life. He was eventually confined to a bed. But as Darlene and Russ Goldston remember, he kept playing music to the end. And he would sing, he would do the whole... Yeah, he'd sing. Sing and then play, play the harmonica and, and play the guitar. I mean, he, he could put on a whole show straight bedridden in the bed. It was an amazing spirit. That spirit is what caught Raphael Sears, Bill Driver's great-great-grandson. He's a fellow who sent us the recording of Driver's fiddle playing. When Raphael listened to his ancestors' music for the first time, he says he knew his own self a bit better. I don't know. It was like once I listened to that, like I was walking a little bit more upright and, you know, and, and just knowing that I was destined to be a performer and knowing that this kind of talent is in my blood just gave me some sense of pride. And I, I even find it today, you know, with music and with acting, it has been my way of finding my own freedom in a world that still says that I'm not good enough. In a world that says that I have to go outside and I have to worry about wearing a hoodie at night. Should I not wear a hoodie so I won't seem threatening? So in some kind of way, even with my great-great-grandfather, music was a way of freedom when, you know, the world was a bit behind. 
think it's I think it's really cool that I get to we get to you know share build to the world. I think that's really cool. I think he'd get a kick out of this too. I think he would. Yeah. Issa Rae narrated our story about fiddle player Bill Driver. You're listening to Historically Black from APM Reports and The Washington Post. I'm Michelle Norris. Our final story is narrated by Heben Nagatu and Tracy Clayton, hosts of the popular podcast Another Round. It's about HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities, and a former slave who started his own college. My name is Deborah Clark Russell, and the a photograph that I submitted was a picture of me and my daughter, along with my great-great-grandfather, the founder of Alabama A&M University. I'm having a got to. And I'm Tracy Clayton. The photo shows Russell standing by a statue of William Hooper Council in Huntsville, Alabama. Alabama A&M University refers to him as Alabama's best-kept secret. And I think after founding a university in 1875... He should no longer be a secret. Deborah Clark Russell's ancestor, William Hooper Council, was born into slavery in North Carolina in 1849. His parents were named William and Mary Jane. Council was the name of the white family that owned them. Council's father escaped to freedom in Canada when the boy was six. The rest of the family was broken up and carried to the Deep South by slave traders. Young William, his mother and one brother were sent to Alabama. Two other brothers were sent elsewhere and never seen again. After the South lost the Civil War, Council began attending a school for blacks in Averyville, Alabama. It was run by Quaker missionaries from the North. Council was 17 years old. Later, Council worked days as a farm laborer and used his earnings to pay for books and for tutoring at night. Here's Eddie Davis Jr. He's an Alabama A&M graduate and he's written a biography of William Hooper Council. Council speaking about his struggles for an education. Accordia says, I plowed once three days for an old Greenleaf's arithmetic. Later, I walked three miles three times a week in physics and chemistry and paid a learned professor 50 cents for each lesson. God forbid that anybody, white or black, should ever be forced to battle against such odds. The Civil War ended in 1865, and the 12 years that followed became known as Reconstruction. Union troops were still stationed in parts of the South, and radical Republicans controlled state governments. The Republicans were the party of Abraham Lincoln. African Americans had come out of slavery wanting land, economic opportunity. They wanted political rights, and they wanted education. This is Jeff Norell, a historian at the University of Tennessee. He says that with Republicans in control, blacks in the South gained a modicum of power for the first time. But white supremacists in the Democratic Party fought back viciously. It was an intensely hostile environment to black people in general, and it was an especially hard attitude among whites against black education. Remember, during slavery, it was illegal for slaves to learn how to read and write. It was also illegal to teach them. After emancipation, many Southern whites still objected bitterly to the notion of educating black people. As he educated himself, William Hooper Council became committed to the idea of schooling for all African Americans. 
he got involved in Republican politics and pressed for expanded state government support of black schools and colleges. Problem was, Reconstruction only lasted about 12 years. Southern Democrats eventually clawed back much of their original political power, including in Alabama, and the Ku Klux Klan was terrorizing African Americans in many parts of the South. Historian James Horton of George Washington University says times were bleak for black people in Dixie. They can exercise very little social control even over their own communities. And so from the standpoint of the African American, this is not quite slavery but it is only a few steps into freedom beyond slavery. So in this harsh environment, council had to curry favor with even the most racist of whites to raise state money for black schools. It will be readily admitted that the Negro is the most desirable of all races as a laborer. This is an actor reading from council's vast body of writing about the role of black people in the South and how to educate them. His message was pitched to white audiences of the day. He is kind, forgiving, and easily understood and managed. He is willing to work at almost any price. But he is ignorant, improvident, and unskilled. And it is to be regretted that his progress is slow in the cultivation of skill in the industries. But there are fruitful and encouraging signs in this direction. So... This might sound a little wild to modern ears, but Council was trying to win support from very hostile forces. In the 1880s, a former slave named Booker T. Washington was also raising money for a black school in Alabama. It would become the widely regarded Tuskegee University. Tuskegee was launched to educate black teachers as well as industrial and farm workers. And Washington would become one of the most influential black leaders of his time. Like counsel, Booker T. Washington also gave a lot of speeches aimed at convincing white races in power to support black schools. He and counsel competed with each other for funding. Some historians later criticized both men for being too accommodating of white prejudice. Booker T. Washington is trying to deal with this situation, and he's doing it in a way that he sees as a practical solution. Again, historian James Horton. And that is, he is trying to call upon the best in white American culture to say that we African Americans will do our part to build the New South if you will only give us an opportunity. And the opportunity he was asking for was not so much political opportunity, but more economic opportunity, at least at the bottom of the economic scale, at least to find a niche in the economic system of the South that will allow African Americans to survive. By the late 1870s, more than half a million black students were enrolled in Southern schools. With Democrats in power, council switched parties to join them. Remember, Democrats back then were more hostile to African Americans than Republicans. Many of council's black contemporaries viewed the switch as a betrayal, but supporters saw it as a practical move. And soon, Council was appointed principal of a new state-funded school for black people in Huntsville. A school that would eventually develop into Alabama Agricultural and Mechanical College for Negroes. It taught carpentry, mattress making, and horticulture for men. Women studied sewing, hat making, and domestic sciences. Council was just 25 years old. Alabama A&M was among dozens of schools launched at the time. Schools that we now call historically black colleges and universities, or HBCUs. 
The majority of black colleges were created uh, shortly after the end of the Civil War, so after 1865. Mary Beth Gassman is a professor of higher education at the University of Pennsylvania. They started in church basements. They started in, you know, old schoolhouses. They started in people's homes. Anywhere people had a thirst for knowledge, knowledge was completely kept from African Americans unless they could find some way to teach each other. So they had a thirst for knowledge. From those modest beginnings, HBCUs grew in size and number over the decades. Today, there are more than 100 HBCUs in America. Many of them in the South. Um, and we can go full start around this way. Including Alabama A&M. Um, y'all know what majors or anything y'all would be interested in? Communications. Communications, okay. On a pleasant a autumn afternoon, program. a group of young people, mostly black but not all, line up for that college ritual, the campus tour. It's led by three energetic A&M students. My name is Mia Flanagan. I'm a senior. I'm a speech pathology major from Atlanta, Georgia. My name is Raven New. More than 5,500 students attend Alabama A&M. It still has programs in agriculture and mechanical trades, but the university also offers a wide range of other degrees. And more than 90% of undergraduates here are African-American. For many students, HBCUs offer a welcome sense of community and deep tradition, and that's why they choose to attend. Gassman says HBCUs are often better equipped than more conventional schools to help underprepared students succeed. They've developed special programs geared to help students who are academically behind catch up with their peers. And she says a number of HBCUs have worked to attract students of color from other groups, especially Hispanics and Asian Americans. Beyond that, Gassman says it's hard to generalize about HBCUs. The one thing that they have in common is that they, at their core, they were all started to engage in racial uplift and support African Americans. Uh, as a freshman, you are going to have to take a music appreciation class, so this is where that will be held. Um, Back at the tour of Alabama A&M, the group of prospective students comes to a site not seen on a lot of college campuses. Our founder and his wife were buried on campus. This, um, to the left of us, is where they are buried. He, uh, he died in 1909, and myth has it that his wife died in 1910 uh, because of a broken heart. William Hooper Council, the founding president of Alabama A&M, died at the age of 59. He had been in poor health for some time. Now, Tuskegee University's founder, Booker T. Washington, is a much more familiar name. There are schools, streets, and public buildings all across the country named for him. Compared to Washington, Council is more of a footnote to African-American history. As his great-great-granddaughter says, a best-kept secret. But William Hooper Council's legacy is not a footnote to the tens of thousands of African Americans who have attended Alabama A&M since 1875. That story was narrated by Heben Nagatu and Tracy Clayton. You've been listening to Historically Black from APM Reports and The Washington Post. It was produced by Kate Ellis and Stephen Smith and edited by Mary Beth Kirshner and Julia Barton. We had production help from Kai Thomas, Mitch Hanley, Larissa Anderson, and Corey Schreppel. The Post staff includes Veronica Tony, Jessica Stahl, Julia Carpenter, Tanya Suchinski, and Tahid Chappelle. Our theme music is by X144. You can hear all the episodes in our Historically Black series at our website, apmreports.org. You can see photos from the project and explore a timeline that shows where these stories fit in American history. Visit apmreports.org. 
I'm Michelle Norris. Thanks for listening. This is APM, American Public Media.